Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoyed this message by Pastor David Eldridge. So last week of Jesus' life, still looking at that Tuesday of the last week of his life, he's in Jerusalem teaching in the temple courts. It's Passover week, so there's a lot of people there. Uh, the, the religious leaders have decided that Jesus has got to go, but they're um, intimidated by the size of the crowds and the, the people in the crowds that are pro-Jesus, and so they're looking for a way to, to undermine him. Last week, we looked at the Pharisees who uh, try to trap Jesus with a question, and we looked at the Sadducees who try to kind of undermine Jesus' credibility by pointing out some the silliness of some of his Beliefs, and then we saw Jesus' brilliant response to both of those challenges. Today, very different. So this is Jesus' last encounter with a religious leader or the religious leadership uh, prior to his crucifixion. And he, that, even that encounter is not necessarily direct. This is his last kind of dialogue exchange uh, with any religious leaders. And it's very different. It's really the only positive one in the whole book of Mark. And it, 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 it'll feel different as we read it. And then we'll, we'll dive into it uh, a little bit before we take communion. So starting in verse 28, one of the teachers of the law, your Bible may say a scribe, one of, a, one of the scribes or the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, that's Jesus and the other religious leaders. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one answered Jesus is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You're right in saying that God is one and there's no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask Jesus any more questions. So a, a scribe or a teacher of the law, that's part of the religious leadership. These guys were experts in the law of Moses. So those first five books of the Bible, they were experts. And their opinions were highly respected, highly esteemed, and even authoritative. They were the teachers of the people. That's what they did. And it was not unusual for them to ask another teacher or another rabbi, how would you summarize the law? So that's a, that's a legitimate question. It's not a gotcha at all. Um, the, the scribes listed out 613 commands in the Old Testament. 365 thou shalt nots and 248 thou shalts. And so, again, not unusual to say we got 613 commands. To, you, you tell me, you're, you're, you're a teacher of, as well, What's the heart? What's, what's the essence? Or, or in our case, what's the greatest of these commandments? Again, that's a legitimate question for one teacher to ask another teacher. And there's every indication that this guy is sincere for no other reason Jesus' response to him. He approaches him individually. And again, it's not a gotcha kind of a question. He genuinely wants to, seems to want to know what Jesus would say. Jesus' response, he quotes from two places in the law, he quotes from Deuteronomy and from Leviticus. From Deuteronomy, he quotes the beginning of what's called the Shema. It was a prayer that was prayed twice a day by pious Jews. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. Jesus added that word mind. In Deuteronomy, you won't see it. And strength. And then from Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. And the scribe says, which is kind of ironic to us, you're right, which is, I mean, it's Jesus. So, but for the scribe, again, he's, he's saying, hey, fellow teacher, that you're, you got it. And even his response to me is pretty interesting. They're in the middle of the temple courts during one of the major annual re- religious festivals. And he says, your answer, like, you're right, to, to love God and to love people, it's more important than all the stuff that's going on right now. All of this stuff that we're in the middle of right now, those two commands, are, are, they're more important than that, which, again, to me is a pretty strong statement during one of the major festivals in the middle of the temple courts where all of this activity that had been sanctioned by guys like him is going on and, in, and, and was a, in obedience to the law as well. And Jesus says to him, you're not far from entering the kingdom. You know, it's not enough just to agree with Jesus. We have to follow him. And this guy has not indicated that he's ready to do that yet. But agreeing with him, like that's, that's something, that's not nothing. So that's what's going on there. Those are, if, when you walked in the door, for most of you, if I said, tell me, what, what are the two greatest commandments in the Bible? Most of you would have said, love God and love people. That's stuff that most of us know, uh, those of us who've been in church for a while. That's something that we've heard before. And again, most of us can quote this passage to a degree, these two verses. But if I asked you further, like, what does it actually mean? To love God and to love people. That's when things start to get a little squishy. I think we know those are the commands, but that next level of detail to say, what what exactly does love look like? That's when we we kind of we, we lose some of our sense of what's going on. You know, in, in English, we use that one word love to describe our relationship with or our feelings towards any number of things. We love God, we love our family. We love pizza. We love Georgia football. It's the same word, and we don't, but we don't mean the same thing in any of those circumstances at all. And some we mean this is my preference, and some we mean this was just tasted really good, and some it's, no, I genuinely, my whole, my whole life is devoted to this one or to this thing. But we just have one word. And again, I think that's one of the reasons it's difficult for us but if, if I were to say to you, what does it mean to you to love God? A lot of us would, would grasp a little bit. It, it's one of those things that maybe, maybe we know intuitively, but it can be hard to put into words. And so it gets pretty squishy in our minds. In Greek, you know, the New Testament was written in Greek. There's four words for love. This really doesn't matter, but it may help you a little bit. Um, two of them are used in the New Testament. You'll see it behind me. Again, if it doesn't help you, don't worry about it. Eros is physical or romantic love. That's not in the New Testament. Storge is the love of, of family members. That's not in the New Testament. But the, the final two are phileo, which is, which is friendship love. It's mutual affection. That is used. Uh, but the, the dominant word, 253 times in the New Testament, is agape. Again, you probably knew that as well. It's hardly ever used in secular Greek, but it is the primary word for love. In the New Testament, it's almost like God inspiring the writers of the Bible said, let's grab onto this word that is not used so much. People don't already know what it means, and let me fill in the meaning for you. Maybe that's what's going on there. And again, it's a word that's not explicitly defined in the New Testament. It is described that the ideas of agape, the two major elements that make it distinct from those other types of love are that it's selfless, self-giving, and that it's uh, the, the merit of the person who is receiving the love is irrelevant. So there's a gracious quality to it, 
It doesn't matter whether you're worthy, whether you deserve love. And then there's this self-giving component to it as well. So maybe the best way of defining New Testament love or agape or biblical love is to say, is to seek the best of another, even at a great cost to yourself, regardless of the merit of the person that you're loving. And again, we don't necessarily get a a clean definition in the New Testament. What we get is a description. And the description is is always tied to the work of Jesus. It's tied to Christmas and to, to Easter. Christmas, the incarnation, when God becomes a man, that peace, that's, there's that self-giving peace. Philippians 2, this one, Jesus, being in, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but he took on the nature of a servant. That idea of giving up, emptying himself. And then on the cross, we see the the extent of that giving, his death. But we also see the gracious character of his love. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's going to be a lot of scripture behind me. I'm not going to read all of them. I just wanted you to get a sense. If you want to dive, this is just a side note. If you want to dive a little bit more into love, John 14 and 15 1 John 4 and 5, those are, your, those are the two best spots, and they complement one another. John 14 and 15, and 1 John 4 and 5. And you'll see a, a sprinkling of those verses behind me as we move through. I'm going to give you some content. I'm going to ask some questions, uh, but I'm not going to go through everything that's, that's on the screens. That's just kind of for your information as you can dive in a little bit deeper. I actually think a lot of this, this requires a bit more than what we can do on a Sunday morning, and it requires a bit more engagement than what we typically have on a Sunday morning as well. So I'm trying to maybe kind of set the table a little bit, and you can discuss this stuff more deeply uh, in your small group. So anyway, New Testament loves to do what's best for someone else, regardless of the cost to ourselves, regardless of the, the relative merit or worth of the person that uh, we're expressing love to, and that love is most clearly seen in Jesus, like this, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son, that's Christmas, to be an atoning sacrifice for our sin, that's Easter. We see both of those things, so the, the gracious character of love and the self-giving character of love we see in Jesus. And I, I, I think that's, we can apply that to one another maybe in a, a bit. It's difficult to think about what does that look like in relationship to God? What does it mean God, what, what does it mean to, to do what's best for God? How do I seek his best? Love for God is, is never defined, and it's only commanded once. That's it. The one that we read, that's the only time in the New Testament we're told to love God. That was interesting to me. There's a parallel passage in Matthew and Luke, so it's written down three times, but it's just one interaction where we're told to love God. But it's, it's implied throughout the Bible particularly in the New Testament. But when love of God is talked about, it's almost always talked about in connection to obedience. And that can start tripping us up too. Almost every time we see love for God mentioned in the New Testament, it's tied to obedience. Again, you can see the scriptures behind me. If you love me, then you'll obey my commands. That's what Jesus says in, in, the, in John, in the, the end of his life, his last conversation with his disciples. If you love me, then you'll obey my commands. And that starts getting tricky for us because we think about, we can tend to think about love maybe a bit more in terms of a feeling 
Uh, and I think it's also tricky because it starts to sound like we're earning God's love. Well, if I love him, then I'll obey. But uh, obedience and love are not the same thing. Obedience is evidence of love. And I think maybe one of the reasons we're told that is to keep us out of our heads. And from God, again, we can start spinning really quickly. Well, do I actually love God? How do I know if I love God? I don't feel like I love God today. And we can start running down, the, chasing these rabbits and really get twisted up on ourselves pretty quickly. And I think there's this kind of a timeout to say, listen, if you're obeying God, then you love him. You don't need to stress about that. It's the greatest commandment so that can make us feel pressure. Like, am I doing a good job? No, time out. If, you, if you're obeying his commandments, that, that's your objective evidence, your objective proof, for a lack of a better word, that you love him. You don't need to worry about how you feel today. We're never commanded to feel a certain way. So you don't need to worry about that. You don't need to worry about whether you feel distant or, or close to God. That, don't worry about those things. Those things ebb and flow, come and go. But you can just step back and look at your life and say, am I walking in obedience? That's evidence of my love. And you know that's true in every relationship that you have. At some point, your words and your actions have to line up, don't they? And if you're continually telling somebody that you love them, but you're acting like a jerk, they're going to say, I'm not so sure that you do. Or we have two different definitions of love. And in those places where sometimes it can be difficult, you know, where, again, when the feelings aren't there, to continue to act in a loving way, seeking the welfare of another, communicates something deeper than a feeling. You understand that. Heart, soul, mind, and strength, I wouldn't get too wrapped up in those words. They're really hard to differentiate what they mean. It really just is what, what Jesus is saying is you need to love me with all of your heart. So I was thinking about the Pharisees. Well, they obeyed as well as anybody. Paul, when he's talking about his life before Jesus, he says, when it comes to obedience, I was faultless, faultless. I didn't mess up. And we look at those guys and we're like, they didn't, they obeyed as well as anybody could obey. But there's no indication that they actually, they certainly didn't love Jesus. Certainly not. And so that also, again, that can kind of make it difficult for us. Well, it, how, how this connection between obedience and in love, and I think what Jesus would say to the Pharisees is what he did say. You honor me with your lips, your hearts are far from me. You did honor me with all your strength. You did a good job externally obeying these commands. You didn't love me with all your heart and your soul. And again, I think I, I wouldn't try to parse those words out too much. There's a whole lot of overlap. But there, it, there is this thing to say, am I loving God with all of, all of myself, my insides and my outsides? Is my love for him coming up from within and spilling over without. And with the Pharisees, the answer was a pretty clear no. They were following the letter, but not the spirit of the law. And I, we can fall into that trap, but if that just maybe helps you a little bit on that obedience and love thing. And as you, if you decide to go back and read John 14 and 15, I'd encourage you to do so, particularly if you're someone who can kind of fall in the trap of performing to go back and read those. And one of the things Jesus says is remain in my love and you can't remain someplace that you're not already. If you obey my commands, then you'll remain in my love. So the idea is you're already in his love by his grace. And then you maintain that position through obedience. If that also maybe helps you put those two pieces together a little bit. Again, for some of you, this isn't an issue. 
But there are people who, who wrestle really with around performing for God. Most of our relationships are transactional, and it's easy to apply that to our relationship with the Lord. And when you hear, if you love me, then you'll obey my commands, what you hear is, get to work. Or turn in your test at the end of every day and let me grade you and see how you did. I don't think that's what Jesus means at all. I don't. We're in his love by his grace. Again, that whole idea of the crucifixion. While we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, he died for us. That's him demonstrating his love for us. And then we remain in his love through obedience, yes. But it's as a response to the love that we've already received. Again, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. Things begin with him. Obedience is super important, but it's not, the, it's not the foundation. The foundation is God's love for us, and we remain in that through obedience. I hope that makes sense. You can go back and read John 14 and 15 if you need a, need a little bit more on that. So obey my commands. Well, what are the commands? The all 613? I don't know them all. You don't know. I don't think any of you know them all. Are we supposed to obey all of those? That can become overwhelming. No, then this can start feeling a little bit circular. Well, what are his commands? Well, it's to love love him and to love others. So the way we know that we love him is by loving him and loving other people. In 1 John, he says this, these are my commands, trusting Jesus and loving one another. Romans, no, Galatians 5, this is a great verse. The only thing that matters, this is it. The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. You can remember that. The only thing that matters is faith that's trusting in Jesus, expressing itself in love for other people. That's it. You can can learn that verse. The only thing that matters is trusting in Jesus, trust in him that expresses itself in love for other people. That's the command. That's it. That's the only command. Which leads very directly to, well, okay, well, what does it look like to love my neighbor? How do I do that? Love for God, again, that can, we're never given, nobody gives you a list. Here's what it means to love God. We're just told you love him, and the evidence of that is your obedience to him. Obedience to what? To his commands. What are his commands? To love other people primarily. To love him and to love others. Faith expressing itself and love, so what does it look like for me to love others? Well, I seek their welfare. I seek their good, regardless of the cost to myself and regardless of whether or not I think they deserve to be loved. And then maybe the question after that is, well, then who, who, who is my neighbor? That's a Luke 10 question. Another scribe comes up to Jesus and says, how do I inherit eternal life? And he says, well, what do you think? What are the commands? And he says, love God and love people. And Jesus says, you're right. Go and do that. And the guy says, well, tell me who my neighbor is. And then y'all know the story in response. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jewish man going from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's mugged, left by the side of the road. Two religious leaders walk by and they see him and they keep going. They don't stop to help. And then a Samaritan does. Samaritans hated Jews. Jews hated Samaritans. But this Samaritan stops and helps this Jewish man. He binds up his wounds. And then he takes him to an inn and gives this guy two days salary and says, here, take care of him. And if, if the bill exceeds what I'm giving you, when I come back, I'll pay the rest. For somebody who hated him, at least in the global sense, and someone who he probably hated, again, in that global sense. And Jesus says to this scribe, who was this man's neighbor? The, well, the Good Samaritan. 
the guy who helped him. Jesus redefines neighbor for us. The first people who heard him would have thought, well, my neighbor is my fellow Jew. That's it. And in that story of the, of the Good Samaritan, Jesus says, no, your neighbor is anybody you come across who's in need. That's your neighbor. So the question maybe is less, who is my neighbor, and more, who am I being a neighbor to? Who am I coming across who has need? And then what does it look like for me to love them? I actually think this is really problematic. And so I just quit thinking about it, which is not always the best thing to do. But I did, because I, I do think it requires us. And I think this is a great thing for you to think through with your small group or around your dinner table, wherever you kind of flesh out obedience to the Lord. We carry the world in our pocket. Right now, you can, within five seconds, you can know the need in Puerto Rico because of, you know, from a hurricane. You can know the need in Ukraine because of a war. That, that's easy for us to access. When Jesus said, love your neighbor, and your neighbor is anyone you come across who has need, in that context, to come across was literal. Like, who are you walking past? It required physical proximity. And so, by definition, your scope is going to be limited really to how far you walk. That, that's, that's, the, that's the extent of your neighborhood. It's how far you walk on a daily basis and the, the people in that village that you come in contact with. So you're talking about maybe hundreds at the top end of people. And then how many of those guys are going to have need on any given day? You've got, again, the whole world in your pocket. You can find every need on the planet right now. Most of us are more aware of global needs than we are the ones on the, from the people down the street from us. And so what does it mean to be a neighbor if being a neighbor is, is loving those who have need when we can know the needs of almost everybody on the planet? That can become overwhelming. And I'm not even thinking through. I, I'm not on social media. That's not my, that's not my world but for some of you, it is. And what does that mean? If you're friends with a thousand people, what does it mean then? What does it mean to be a neighbor to these people that you're following? If you know the needs in their life. Again, I think that can get pretty overwhelming pretty quickly. What does it mean to engage with Instagram? Or I don't even know what you do. You follow on Instagram. I don't know what you do on TikTok. Whatever you do with that slash friends on Facebook? What does that look like to say, I, ha I have some level of responsibility to these people. I'm not just a voyeur looking at their life. And if you are, ooh, like, don't do that anymore. <laughs> what does it mean to be a neighbor to them? And again, that can become overwhelming very quickly. And I think those are some great conversations to have. I think the social media thing I don't want to throw rocks at people who are engaged in that. If that's part of your life and world, I, I, seriously, I would encourage you to begin to pray and to talk to other people who that is part of their life and world and say, what does it look like for us to be good neighbors to these people who we've reconnected with or that we're following? If we know of the needs in their life, what's the level of responsibility? And how does that translate to the level of responsibility that you have to people here who you have you know, kind of a, a physical relationship with, tangible relationship, face-to-face -face relationship. I don't know the answer to that question. I looked around. I hadn't seen anybody answer it yet. But I think it's something we need to figure out. It's not going away. We maybe wish it would, but it's not. And so what does it mean? I, I hate to say what does it mean to be a digital neighbor, 
but what does it mean to be a neighbor to people again that you're that that's your primary point of connection is it just giving money to the GoFundMe when you find out and again you'll be broke in a week and then what does it look like again for us as citizens now of a global society where we can know the needs all around the world what is our responsibility there what's my responsibility to the church in the Ukraine. It's interesting to me. This is something you could also think about. I'm just giving you questions. I'm not really helping you. That's what you get for coming on a kind of a break Sunday. So here's some questions. I was thinking through, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And then when he's talking to his disciples and he says, y'all love one another the way I loved you. And is there, what, what even is the, the distinction there? Is it, are there concentric circles? Are there levels of responsibility that look different? My responsibility to my brothers and sisters in Christ, not family. Remember, that word's not used in the Bible, storge. But within the church, as you read 1 John, that's the key. It's brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, one another. He's talking about how we relate to one another as believers. And then what does that say about people who are outside, who are our neighbors? And is that a different standard? Do we love believers the way Jesus loved us? And do we love our neighbors as we love ourselves? And how do those things even begin to connect with one another? All this, I feel like we need to figure out. If, if we're going to be known by our love, then we need to know what it means to love. We need to know, first of all, what it means to love God. And so that's a life that's marked by obedience to him. Obedience to what? Faith expressing itself, trusting Jesus that's expressed in love for others. And then what does it look like for us to say, we're good Samaritans, that's what we're called to be. How do we begin to walk that out? A really simple way to get started is to ask the Lord, show me the need, of, of, show me need when I'm interacting with people. Like, is, is need only material? Of course, the answer to that is no. That's the easiest one to see. But because of housing patterns, most of us don't see it. I don't know any mixed income developments in Marietta. There may be some. I don't know any. Our neighborhoods are segregated based on our income levels. And so for many of us, we don't see need on a regular basis. And again, at this point, that's maybe neither here nor there. But there's this a willingness from us to ask the question and say, God, would you give me eyes to see? The need, whether that's you, he's going to rework the ruts that you walk in so you come across physical need or give you eyes to see the intangible needs of the people who seem to have it all together. Both those things are legit. God, show me the need in my life. And then to say, when you see it, and this is the hard part, God, show me what love looks like in this instance. What does it mean to work for the good in this particular Instance, And sometimes we assume we know what's best for somebody else, and we could be wrong. There's got to be a submissiveness there to the Lord. What does it mean for me to seek the best, to seek the welfare of this person? And remember, it has nothing to do with whether they deserve it or not, and it has nothing to do with how much it costs you. Those factors are irrelevant. This is agape, New Testament, Christian, Jesus, love. That's both gracious and self-giving. So God, would you give me eyes to see need? And then when you see it, the discipline to say in this moment, time out. God, what does it look like for me to love them? 
What does love look like in this situation? I think there's some, there may be some general principles that we can hold, but I think it's a pretty specific and individual application of that definition. In this particular instance, what does it look like to seek your good? In this particular situation, what does it look like for me to seek your good? There are things that are beyond, there are things I can't do. I'm, I have limits. So based on who I am and what God has given me, what does it look like for me to seek your good and to seek your welfare? Again, I don't have answers to any of those questions other than to say, I think we probably want to start figuring it out. And some of you are farther down the road in that than I am. This is how I want us to close. I know that's just, I don't know how you feel. That's just a bunch of thoughts. I think they're okay, but there are no answers. They're not, I don't, I don't, I don't have them for some of these things. And I think, I, I do think it's okay. Relationships, again, there's some principles that run the gamut. But part of, part of our faith is we follow a Savior who became flesh and lived among a particular group of people in a particular place for a particular time. That's the incarnation. And I think he's looking for the same thing from us. He's put you where he's put you in the time that he's put you there. And so we need to ask him, what does love look like? Like, what, what, what does it look like? In, a, in, in an age of Facebook and Instagram and TikTok, in an age of global news, what does it look like? In an affluent community like we live in, what does it look like to love other people and to seek their good? He'll show us. We just got to ask. This is how I want us to close. We're going to take communion. The way we do that here at Stonebridge, you'll break up, you'll come forward a row at a time. You'll break off a piece of bread and you'll dip it in the juice. We have gluten-free communion and then we have that uh, pre-packaged if you feel more comfortable taking that. Um, and we're also going to have some teams here. And I would love, if this makes you totally uncomfortable, you don't have to do it. You can just walk past them. But if you're willing, I'd like you to stop at the teams or there'll be individuals and they're going to anoint you. They're just going to put a cross with oil on your hand, and they're going to, if you would tell them just your first name, my name is Katie, and what they're going to say is, Katie, I'm, I'm, we anoint you to know the love that the Father has for you. That's all they're going to say. Katie, we anoint you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit to know the love that he has for you. That's the beginning for us for all of this. If we start with either trying to love God or trying to love other people, we're going to fail and we're going to burn out. And then we're going to get frustrated and we're going to quit. And what we're going to wind up doing is redefining love to something that we can do on our own, which is what we've done for a long time. That's what we do. We just move the, we move the goalposts or we shrink the boundaries in. This is something I can handle. It's because we're starting from the wrong place. Again, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And communion reminds us of the great love that he has for us. And so as we take communion this morning, I want us to do it in that frame of mind, kind of meditatively saying, God, I want to know. I want to know this great love that you have for me. And just as an outward sign of that, if you would be willing just to ask, just to stop by after you take communion and let these guys pray that one sentence prayer over you. We've said before, part of the Holy Spirit's job is to guide us into the truth. And so that's why we're, that, that anointing oil, that's kind of a sign or a symbol of the Holy Spirit's work within us.
So this is how I want us to get into communion. If you'd stand, we're going to read or pray a couple of prayers together. 1 John 2 says, if the love of God is in us, excuse me, that, it, that if we love the world, then the love of God is not in us. It's a very um, binary statement. We either love the world or we love God. And so what I want us to do this morning, we're going to pray that top thing, just those first three lines out loud together. And then underneath, those are three specific things John says. Here's some examples of loving the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and um, the pride of life. And so we're going to pray that first prayer together out loud. And then we're going to stop and be quiet. And you can ask the Holy Spirit. And if you need some specific handholds, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, and there's some definitions there. Is that good? So I'm going to say a prayer, and then we're going to pray that prayer of confession together. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and you would lead us. I pray that as we take communion, I pray that it would not be a rote act for us. I pray that you would communicate to our hearts, to our minds, to our souls, even to our bodies, the great love that the Father has for us, demonstrated through the sending of his Son to die as an atoning sacrifice for our sin, unworthy as we were. You willingly, you gladly, even joyfully came for our good. So would you come now, would you lead us in this time? Amen. All right, let's pray this prayer. Holy Spirit, search me and know me. Show me any places in my heart where I'm loving the world or the things of the world. Now we'll be quiet for a minute. the Holy Spirit brought something to your mind and you're willing to repent, then you just do that. God, I confess, I acknowledge this is a sin. I want to repent of that and I want to receive your forgiveness for that sin. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would lead us more deeply into the truth of the love of God. The things that we've shared today that don't necessarily get wrapped up nice and neat with a bow. I pray that in the kind of that messiness of our lives, trying to walk out what does it mean to love you and to love others. I pray first for a desire to do both of those things. That you would stir our hearts with a deeper motivation to love you and to love those that we come into contact with. But foundational to all of that, again, I pray that we would know the great love that you have for us. So I want us to pray these two prayers together. It's one prayer on two slides. So let's pray this together. God, I pray that out of your glorious riches, you may strengthen me with power 
through your Holy Spirit in my inner being, in my heart, in my mind, and in my soul, so that Jesus may dwell in my heart through faith. And I pray that I, being rooted and established in your love, may have power together with all your holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Jesus for me and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that I may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of your love. So again, Lord, we pray as we take communion, bread and juice would somehow feed our soul, would lead us more deeply into the vastness of your love for us. And even this simple act of oil on a hand, I pray that you would, Holy Spirit, see that as an invitation this week to empower us to grasp the profundity of the, the love of God. In your name. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 